Okay, we are live. 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 <clears throat> Good. Uh, so, very special guest today. Very special guest today. Yeah, man. So, um, when uh, cl opening closed guard came out, I like did the whole post on Instagram. We got the thing. And, yeah, coffee regular. We're going to read it. And Robert Drysdale himself was like, hey, let me know what you think. And I'm like, cool. You know, I'm, I do like in the comments, I have to read back. But he's like, yeah, I'll come on the cast and chat about it. And well, I contacted him when I finished the book. And here we are. Here we are. We're going to talk to Robert Drysdale today, and I'm very excited. <laughs> yes, yes, this is a big one, man. Right. It's we had a... Stephen Lambden last week. That was a big one, and then Robert Drysdale this week. So it's been a, it's a hell of a February, it's a nice, man. Nice little month there. I'm, uh, I'm okay with it. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the uh, I've finished the book as well, and like I've kind of run back and done some notes and stuff. I formulated a couple questions, and now you have to, but I am really just looking forward to having Robert just talk about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, he seems like a super chill dude, so I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Yep. So hopefully, I sent him a link for this. Hopefully it happens. There's so many wild cards going on here. There always is. Uh, so. Internet, time change, schedules. Yeah. <clears throat> Mike's been a champ. He's been handling the scheduling and the coffee getting and all of it. And today, we have Robert Drysdale, so... <laughs> Trying, homie. I'm trying. Uh, what are we drinking today? Are we drinking Hawaiian Queen. Extra hey, fancy. Extra fancy. Yeah, it smells good, doesn't it? Yep. I have, I have like my notebook that I write down all the coffee reviews that I'll then later on upload to Tranquility Cafe or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I have my Hawaiian Queen page. Oh, very good. <clears throat> I pretty much finished up the pea berry and like rated that one. In my opinion, it's fucking good. Yeah, yeah, that was the stuff. There's one that I wasn't super fond of. And then, like, obviously the pea bear is just, you know, the standard because I like pea bear. Yeah. Um, it's either the extra fancy or the private reserve. One I wasn't too keen on and the other one I loved, so. Okay, well, we'll find out because I love the private reserve. Yeah. Personally. The extra fancy I also love, but it's a little bit hot. should be okay. I get a little, like, smoky flavor on some of these, like tobacco-y almost. Like, mm -hmm. Like, like this used to be on plantation, and now we are growing coffee. But yeah, definitely tobacco is the right word. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that is from that Iceland picture. I'm like, what is what is this? And I'm like, oh shit, that. <laughs> it's close enough. Mm. That's okay. That's great. Mm. A little hot. I'm gonna let it cool. Mm. I've turned over a new leaf. You know. All right then. I let the mm. coffee cool. However, when I do let it cool, gotta freaking slam it after that. That's true. As usual, though, I make it a little little extra hot because I don't know what time you're getting here. Yeah. So. I have switched to the tumbler at the house, though. <clears throat> oh, nice. Your recommendation. Um, you said it'd be a you know, wait till you have the kids thing. I was like, nah, I'm doing that now. <laughs> Get used to it now. Right. Yep. All right. So. It's a beautiful sunny day, even though we had a shitload of snow last night. <laughs> and ice, about two inches of ice under that snow. Yep. Yeah, we went out and shoveled this morning and. Um, I just like told my daughter, I was like, just shovel the snow off the top of the ice. Yeah. <laughs> We're not fighting that ice. Right. Uh, so it's all melting fairly well. It's all Yeah, good. the sun's beautiful day, really. Mm -hmm. If you can stay out of the conditions. Yeah. I mean, I've been running around barefoot outside a bunch today. Yeah. It feels nice. There you go. Uh, 
that's, this is the only bad thing. I'm going deaf, so I have to really press on to these when I'm... Oh. You going deaf or just your ear holes too small now with cauliflower closing in? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the hearing loss runs in the family, so I'm kind of like, ugh. I don't know. Can't uh, you get some, get some stem cells or something right. stretched in there? Yeah, I need some like stem cell Gatorade to just kind of revamp a couple of things, really. Just yeah. some generic stuff. Spin some out of your fat cells and just like poke it into your ear or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. My sister used to work at a plastic surgeon's office and oh, sweet. he saw my ears at one point or like my she showed him a picture or something. And he was like, I can fix that. And I was like, <laughs> nah. Nice sorry, bro. It would just go right back to what it was, yeah. but not worse. I like these. I like these the way it is. Those mine aren't that bad. They stay pretty close to my head. <laughs> I don't, like, don't like stick out. And they don't flop out. Bulb out too much. That's funny. Mm. Now my ears are getting a little flat. Check yeah. it out. Look, look at that. Oh yeah. Yeah, they're getting a little bit. See, the there's a couple of people at the gym who have some issues at the moment. So yeah. this is kind of how it happens. It comes uh, and goes in streaks. Yeah, I just have kickier. I've been kicked Getting in the kicked. ears a billion times, and then I think added, you know, I added judo to it. it and now I do jujitsu, and I'm like, like they're starting to, starting to get good. Yeah. Any just grindiness, it's gonna do it. Yeah. And then some people are wild, and they just like want to look tough, so they like slam their ears and doors or some shit. Or people are wild. They like have people, people actually do that. Yes, people will do wild stuff. That's crazy. I mean, tough. I've seen I videos of it. It's wild. I know ballerinas shut their shoes indoors to break them in, but I didn't know people shut their ears indoors. Got to get that cauliflower ear, dude. That's ridiculous. <clears throat> like people tearing their pants. Like, yeah. Go out and fall down and tear your pants, man. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, did you have a favorite part of the book? Like, oh, like a man. Favorite interview or anything? It took me a while to read it. But, um, and like the names aren't sticking with me as well. Right. Some of like, cause it's just, they're all over. There's right. People I've never even heard of. Exactly. They're like, you know, like ancients in the game. Right. Yep. So, um, the Kosen Judo chunk, in fact, the whole Japan chunk, I thought was really cool. Yep. Is with, uh, just the, you know, between the Kodakan and between, um, Kosen Judo and then, um, the dude that fought in pride and planned in one eye. Uh, Yuji uh, Nakai. Yeah, Nakai. I thought that was really cool because yeah. it was sort of three different takes. Right. Right. You know, because Yuji Nakai was like full on, you know, the Japanese Brazilian Jiu Jitsu Federation, right? Yep. And uh, and then the Kosen Judo, I can't remember his name, but he was cool just because I think I have lineage in Kosen Judo uh -huh. from just the way I learned Judo. It just, it lines up. Yeah. And, um, so like I'm I'm gonna find that out when I go to Japan actually. I'll be in Kyoto. I'm gonna hook it up, right? And then um how sort of like the Kodakon like acknowledges jujitsu's existence, like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but it's just like whatever, yeah. yeah. We let you in, it's cool. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, but then I like all the different personalities. You know, like we were talking about um the old dude with the beard. Mm -hmm. You walked around naked. Like he's just chilling. He's just a happy guy. Exactly, he's a happy guy. And that was like one of my overarching concepts that I pulled out of it is that just everyone, especially the older people, was just very content and fulfilled within their life, you know, and their choice with jujitsu. They all seem to have put it into a place. Yeah, they put it into a place and a time, and 
kind of accepted it as an adventure and saw that, you know, they made some mistakes and they made some right choices and it's sort of, they boiled it down to like, but yeah, but the training carried with me mm-hmm. and I still do it. And that's cool. Yeah. And like, that's really cool to see that, that, you know, I can, we've talked about it before, but like the goal of longevity and to be mm-hmm. on the mat as long as possible, they're living proof. Of, yeah. You know, and it's possible and that is, it is a lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think, I think the Yuki Nakai interview is probably one of my favorites, I think, mm. if not my favorite. Um, I remember watching him in the um, Japan 95 tournament. One of picks in, watching and, that tournament. And then you see Choke and behind the scenes of the tournament. And you're like, what? Yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but I'm trying to think of which fight. I think he fought that one real tall kickboxer dude. And he was like in mm. underneath and Ashigurami, like you know, it was in leg entanglements. and Yeah. Uh, but this is in the pounds. 90s. Yeah, he was in the corner, <laughs> and this taller dude is just fucking pounding on him. Yeah. And he still beat him. Yep, he beat him, uh, but he also lost an eye and lost his vision. Yeah, so, he lost. He at least lost vision in one eye. I don't know if the whole eye yeah, went. Right, I don't know yeah. if Michael Bisping did, it's just like yeah. he lost a little bit of an eye. Yeah, I mean, and then didn't tell anyone for years. He right. didn't, didn't want to hurt the sport. Yeah. Like, is, wow. And the, uh, his acceptance of that. Yeah. He was very like, super it cool happened. About it. it happened. <laughs> This is life. Yeah. yeah. Which I, you know, ton of respect. Where a lot of people, they lost, aside from like Michael Bisping as well, who also all... hit it and then took, you know, a very nice, but dignified just stance with it. Never complained about it. Right. Day. Yeah. I mean, it was never like, oh, fuck my eye when he could have. He sure. totally could have. People, yeah, but he never said anything and we all found out by accident because he finally decided as a joke to take the take the lens out. Right. And and like, like, oh. like, what? Like, we never knew. What a reveal. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great reveal. I showed that to some people that have no idea who he is just to scare them. They're like, oh, like what? Shit. Oh, yeah. This is what you like to do. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yes. Typical. Yes. Speaking of which, I got protein built up on my. I got to go get a laser. Oh, really? The fake one? Yeah. Yeah. yeah my implant, whatever. And uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, it's a little funky. I went to the eye doctor. And he's like, my astigmatism's changed. I was like, is that even still possible, homie? He goes, oh, wait, let me look. He was like, oh, yeah, you got a film on there now. <laughs> they got fuck. <laughs> no, nah, it's, it's, it happens. It's supposed to happen. Oh, it um, is? Yeah. Okay. So they can just, they'll just laser it. Mm-hmm. Like, they just go windshield wipe it for me. Clean you up. Yeah, so I just got to give them a call. That's cool. Uh, but, yeah, as, you know, in Michael Bisbing fashion, I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. But my, my di- eye doctor's like, I can change a prescription. I'm like, dude, I have very low standards for vision, so this is still spectacular. I'm I'm good. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. This is fine. <laughs> this is still a little the, murky. It's the fine. best ever. Oh. I have been blessed with good vision for most of my life, so I, it's like all I do notice when I get damaged or like I get poked or something. I'm like, oh shit! <laughs> I don't. I don't. I probably would have had good vision had it not been for all the oxygen that was shot at me when I was born. They didn't know that. Yeah, that it like makes you blind. Different story so, back then. It is what it is. Things were different back in the day. Yeah. I How's it looking? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Fingers crossed. A couple minutes out. Yep. Coffee is tremendous today. It's good. Mm. Yeah, it was just hot enough that it's cooled off now and it's not like. It's not too cool. Scorching. It's like it's good. Mm. Mm. This is a little more chocolatey. 
mm-hmm. I feel like. But yeah, it definitely has that tobacco on it. Right. That is cool. Mm. Learn about them flavors. Remember when I was a little kid, um, um, we went up in, in the middle of freaking nowhere playing in the woods. We actually, I could find tobacco plants. <laughs> wild tobacco was up in one of these woods. Wild. And when you get wild tobacco, you just kind of come out and chew on it. Yeah. And you get all like buzzed. Um, yeah, you get that nicotine. Yeah. Wild tobacco and then um, birch bark. <laughs> like birch gum. Yeah. Like you peel the bark back and mm. you get the green stuff. Yeah, that's good. And sassafras, I used to dig up sassafras roots and make tea. I've done that. Uh, that shit's good. <clears throat> you can do all, I did all kinds of stuff in the woods. Yep. I did, forget did about that and Boy Scouts a bunch. Mm-hmm. That was That's like it. the activity. We would make. Oh, uh, see, this was just life. Right. right. <laughs> we would make like Kool Aid with all of the flavors because everyone would bring a different flavor. And then oh, you nice. make, you know, all of the Kool Aids. And then uh, that. We'd make sassafras. We'd all like hunt it and fucking find it and see if we make the best cut. Oh, heck yeah, man. It's good stuff. I'm going to have to plant a sassafras tree or something. Right. See? I know. In your garden. <laughs> your garden it's, of truth. The imagination is kicking hard on that. Like, yeah. I hope reality holds up. I don't want to right. dig into it too much, you know? Uh, I took a, on Sunday, took a leg lock prag of a Sean. Oh, sweet. Sean came down? Whew. No, I went up to him. Oh, right on. Yeah, but I, we were worked on breaking mechanics, just kind of as a generic concept and topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Heel hook breaking mechanics, straight ankle breaking mechanics. So how, how this isn't supposed to bend and how to get it there. Yeah, <laughs> and like it's pretty easy to achieve with heels and feet and hips and stuff like that if you're pinned properly and stuff. Oh um, yeah, everything really just happens within the grips. Like cool. if you can like get everything set the way it should be, the soon the second you like clasp your hands, it should be almost done. done. But you have tons of space to finish it if you needed it. Oh neat. Right, so That's super cool. It was very cool, and just like I, I likened it to other concepts in my head. Oh, yeah, right? I'm like, oh shit, That's awesome. it's everywhere. <laughs> That's awesome. Which that seems to be the also overarching theme when I work with him is like, oh shit, that's everywhere. He's like, yep. He's like, yep, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> that's funny. Learning uh, anatomy and physiology through breaking mechanics. I think it's true. But I think that way, that door in is always so much better because I learned anatomy through striking. I'm surprised you more. Know? Yeah, I'm yeah. surprised more people that are in that field don't look into voluntary breakage like jujitsu and like mm-hmm. <laughs> grappling arts and like um, how much one, it can take and like one guy. <laughs> one guy is actually studying MMA. One exercise physiologist, Andy Kelpin, is like the only guy. Everyone else that I knew from the game, like they all think they're all ball sports people. Mm. They think you're insane. They think you're just like, why would you do the fighting thing? Right. Yeah. So I don't know, dude. I don't get that part. I'm like, why would you do the ball sport part? I'm like, let's just get to the fighting. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Like everyone wants to see the fight at the ball sport thing. Exactly. Like hockey is the only thing that really preserves and allows that. Yeah. Even then. Once you judo throw you, you're done. You know, <laughs> a few instances though that you see on YouTube or whatever that like dude will get the perfect grip and wait for him to fucking you know step too heavy and then like, toss the whoa, shit out skates of him too, on man. ice. Yeah, whoa, on ice like, on, with swords on your feet. That, <laughs> yeah. is, that is crazy. You're not fucking around. No, there's danger. But yeah, leg locks—they're so fun. Mm-hmm. And that's that's probably a question I'll have for him at some point. It's like what. 
you <laughs> think of the leg locks like <laughs> and like how prominent they are now do you like the leg lock game so yeah <laughs> what do you think or do you think i'm a scoundrel <laughs> you are you are slightly less worse than a wrist locker exactly well, god i like wrist locks now too oh, so love me a wrist lock dude they're fun <laughs> I actually saw a video of someone hit a really cool one in competition recently. It's kind of like the sideways one where you're like oh, yeah, yeah, coming yeah. out this way. But he caught it in his armpit and just like turned out and got it. It was pretty nice. That's cool. But yeah, the, uh, there's a few people at the gym that are starting to kick on to them. They don't have friends, but you know. <laughs> Me too. One sec. Yes. Oh, cool. Yes. Kicking on. Kicking on. Okay, we're going. Hey. We're going. Now, we're just assuming it all has to work. Once Come on, internet. Work. Don't fuck with us now, simulation. Yeah. <laughs> I need to be on the other end of this process sometime. You need to invite me to something. Yeah. I need to log on with my phone. So I've never done that end of it. I have right. no idea what's going on. So it's I found it very simple on the phone. Uh, very streamlined. Very good. Okay. Oh, here we go. Um all right mr all right can you can we you guys hear you. me yeah we can hear you yeah all right all right we got this sweet all right uh thank you for um you know uh, going through all this trouble to get on man no no worries man i understand um i just suck at technology in general i'm like uh, i normally need help with this stuff but like i i you know it's it, there's always something that goes wrong i feel like nothing is as smooth as possible like <laughs> My students like they they hear me bitch about Bluetooth every fucking class. Like <laughs> I, I asked them, I asked them for like every class. Like I for my birthday, buy me a cassette tape. Like I just want to have a cassette <laughs> yes. tape because you press play and it always worked. You never had an issue with cassette tape in your life. You press play, it worked one hundred percent of the time, right? Even when they were old, they yep. still worked. Yep. Bluetooth is a fucking nightmare. But anyway, <laughs> here yes. we are, man. It's working. All right, good deal. I love it. Yeah, man. Thanks for taking the time to come on. No, for sure, man. My pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, this is um, this is a big one. We've had a hell of a February for guests, yeah. so this has been really cool. Uh, all right, so um, I guess start with we are a coffee podcast. So how's your coffee game these days? Um, I've drank more coffee in the last four, three, four years than I drank my previous previously my entire life put together. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's fair to say I'm up to like maybe three, four hundred milligrams a, a day. Dang. Uh, what are you drinking? Like, uh, actually, I take a pill in the coffee? morning. No, I oh, think there's nice. a caffeine pill that I take in the morning. And then throughout the day, I'll drink coffee whenever it's near me, whatever's in front of me. Like I don't really have a favorite. I just <laughs> – whenever is in front of me, I'll grab it and drink it. I used to do a lot of pre-workouts too, but those are – it's too much. It hits me too hard. Yeah. So just rather, you know, I'll just sip on coffee whenever I get a chance. Normally gotcha. by three, four o'clock in the afternoon, like I need that extra dose of caffeine just to get through the day. Uh, I'm, I'm like that about two o'clock usually. Yep. So yeah. <laughs> do you have a like preferred brewing method or again, just anything in front of you? Whatever's in front of me. Like I, I, my, my, yeah. my mom makes like coffee Brazilian style. And it's kind of it's similar to Cuban coffee, which is my favorite. Okay. I love Brazilian oh. Cuban coffee. Um, coffee. I'm not crazy about like Starbucks. I'll go, but it's not. It's, it tastes like candy to me. It doesn't taste like coffee, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, yeah. I'll drink it. But it's not my my favorite. I like the 
the Italian, uh, the the machine. What do you call the the, the barista machine? There's a name for oh, it. Oh yeah, I know about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that's that's good. Like that's good coffee. Um, yeah, like the the, the 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 coffee machines they have in grocery stores, like the ones that people normally use. Like I don't know, it's just something just doesn't just doesn't do the job i feel like i'll drink it but it's not my favorite yeah I, I completely agree yep i'm a i'm a big fan of a french press and a mocha pot which is probably it's like a stovetop espresso so i like to make cuban coffee on a mocha pot it's good stuff yeah good stuff man all right all right so um i wonder okay so there might be a little bit of a delay all right yeah okay so uh, yeah um we might we might be in and out just a little bit this time of the day the internet can get spotty at my house so like if there's a pause just one of us is weird so <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> all right all right no man. worries, well, no worries um, on my cool all right well mike you had the questions buddy <clears throat> yeah um so we do have some people who don't have a jiu-jitsu background who listen and stuff so would you like to kind of break down your experience with jiu-jitsu a little bit before we get started into the book yeah absolutely so yeah it's i started training when i was uh 16 years old uh i was in brazil at the time i'm half brazilian and i i was raised in brazil and i think that teenagers are i mean at least i was looking for something um i didn't know what that was but i was looking for something to be passionate about so jiu-jitsu was something I found, um, it, it was just, it was a calling, you know, it was a very, I was very attractive, very drawn to it very, very quickly. And I, I knew I had found something I, I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. I found something special. So I was very lucky, very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time because I have no idea what I'd be doing if it weren't for jujitsu. So it really set my life on a really awesome course of action. Like I, I, I have lived, I live a really awesome lifestyle been very fortunate to do what i love and being able to teach it for a living and travel the world doing it and i just i mean i i i, I give the credit to to luck I, i'll give credit to myself too it was an uphill battle it wasn't always easy but i think the element of luck is often overseen uh, on these things people like to give themselves a pat in the back and go it was all me and grind but it's not just that right there's there's many factors that go into this and you just something i i i was I was drawn to it was it was really something I'm very passionate about and my competition lifestyle took took my life over I so all I wanted to do was train and compete and win medals and travel and it was a good life like I I had fun like we would sleep in vans and sleep on old mats and <laughs> yep. you know the idea of staying in a hotel was just like what are you rich like hotel <laughs> 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 we never in the hotel we, it was 12 people in a room yeah. no it was it was it was exactly it was there were no i mean i didn't sleep in a hotel <clears throat> like a hotel i didn't have a room for myself and uh, when i travel until it was a black belt it just never happened right it just never yeah I, I remember one time we were driving back from rio de janeiro and there's in brazil they have motels but motels in brazil means something completely different motels <laughs> a place for for having sex it's for fun that's all it's for yeah yeah there's, so you don't you don't go to a motel rates. to sleep yes but it's it's cheaper you only know, get like you get like three hours it's you know that's the the, the, the average day but you, you can <laughs> extend it but it's it's not a place for it's not for for people to see but we have, there's like four of us in a car and we're exhausted it's like two in the morning we're driving home it's like man we need to sleep man like no one wants to drive so there's no hotels. We find a motel. Like, let's all sneak in because you're not supposed to go. 
you're supposed to go as a couple, right? Like, you know, <laughs> so, two, so two of us, two of us, you know, kind of you know, hide in the back. We do our best to hide in the back seat. And the other two guys in front, you know, they're, they're, they're going in there as a gay couple. <laughs> <laughs> we get into the motel, man, and shit was funny. And then we had to sneak in. We're laughing so hard. And we get in there. It's just like mirrors everywhere and sex. <laughs> like the sex swing. And it's the four of us in there. It's like, and I turn on the TV. It's just porn, porn, porn. That's all you get is porn. Dude, and we were like dying. Like, and it's get get this round bed that barely fits one grown person. You know, like, and they're like, it's four of us. What are we gonna do? So this is the dumbest idea ever, you know. That's but we really scary. need to sleep. So we had like two of us, like you know, sleeping in the bed, and then like two of us, like we put some some blankets on the floor and then slept on the floor. And yeah, just funny stuff like that. I mean, good good moments, man. It was it was a uh... <laughs> funny. I'll give it better. Yeah, you'll, you'll <laughs> so never I was, forget that. I just, I, I was asleep during this part. I don't remember, but apparently one of them wakes up in the middle of the night. One of the guys that's in bed wakes up in the middle of the night, turns on the TV and starts watching porn. <laughs> next thing you know, he starts beating his meat with the guy right next to him in bed. <laughs> He's like, when in Rome. <laughs> and then, and then the, guy, the guy wakes up, like, bro, what the fuck are you doing? You know, uh, I, I was asleep for all that. I missed that, but they're talking about it the next day, and it's hysterical. Man. We're laughing so hard. Like, dude, that was the gayest fucking day of my life, man. But it was, it, yeah, good memories, man, for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that was the lifestyle, man. In real life. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. So, um, with, uh, well, ah, go ahead, Mike. You have no, questions. Go for it, man. Uh, so, I was, um, I guess let's you know with the book when you were traveling for it um like in japan when you um when you were interviewing all the judo people so uh the kosen judo part like blew my mind that particular one like when it opened up with you know kosen judo is not an art it's a rule set yeah that melted my brain i don't think i've ever done a martial art i think i've only ever trained rule sets yeah. Yeah. It was, I was, it was very impactful because there's a lot of confusion too about Kosen, Kosen Judo. They think it's a different style. It's Judo. It's, mm-hmm. it's Kodokan Judo practiced under a different rule set that allows for guard pulling basically. But it's interesting. They look at guard pulling in a very different way than Brazilian Jiu Jitsu people look at guard pulling. They look at guard pulling as a means of stalling almost. Like I'm supposed to stall hmm. the match here for my team to win because they, they, it works in a team mentality. So you're supposed to sacrifice your match for the team to win. I don't exactly understand what the details of the rule set is, but like it basically guard pulling is for stalling. And, uh, but they, they got good guards, you know, they, it's, it's, it's somewhat sophisticated, you know, like these guys were doing De La Hiva as an X guard at a time where, you know, people in Brazil had no idea what a triangle was. So these, their, their, their version of Niwazu was for most of the 20th century was far ahead of what Brazilians were doing. There's, there's a lot of confusion that goes on about Kosen Judo. They think, oh, BJJ is Kosen Judo. It's not true. Like, there's no influence whatsoever of Kosen Judo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's just that Kosen Judo resembles Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in a lot of ways because it allows for guard pulling, right? But when Maeda and many of the other Japanese who are teaching in Brazil, they left for Brazil, the original Japanese, the very first ones, when they left for Brazil, Kosen Judo did not exist in Japan, right? So... It's a bit of a confusion because it's so so similar. People think that, you know, correlation equals causation kind of thing. And they they they, yeah. they get these things confused. But it's not, it's there's no there's no correlation whatsoever. 
Oh, okay. Um, then I have one more Kosen Judo question, and I'll hand it back to Mike. Um, I trained Judo in like the early 2000s, but it was real bootleg. It was like I did, I'm a Taekwondo guy, and I did Olympic okay. Taekwondo for a long time, and we just did Judo at the school. And yeah. I asked my coach once, I was like, where did you learn Judo? He's like, I learned Judo in California. I grew up in, I grew up in San Diego. I'm like, what is it? He's like, some old guy used to choke me with his knee all the time. That's what I remember of like as a little kid learning judo. That's where he started. Yeah, yeah. And I was wondering like if that was Kosen judo because that choke doesn't really exist in judo. And yeah. so I've always like kind of connected it through that. I wondered if anyone ended up in the states. Right. Yeah, as, in, as in teaching Kosen judo? Yeah. I never heard of it. I'm sure that. You know, if you talk to a lot of old school judokas, they're very critical of like the Kodokan rule set, the Olympic rule set, because they feel it has drifted away from its roots, which is probably, I mean, I'm not too familiar with judo, but it's probably true. It's become very stand-up oriented, like, you know, no singles, no doubles. It lost some of the martial aspect of it, it became a very aesthetically beautiful sport, mm -hmm. but it lost some of the martial tradition. Um, I'm sure that people had, you know, some experience with Kosei Judo in Japan that moved to the U.S., but Judo's never been huge in the U.S. to begin with. And, you know, so it's not like it, it's not like it would be, you know, it wouldn't spread like wildfire in Southern California like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu did. You know, it's there okay. was there were many things that were missing to it for it to, you know, really blow up. But I'm sure someone, you know, had some experience in Japan and brought it over. You got to remember, too, it's not that popular in Japan. It was never popular. We're talking seven universities in Japan practicing it and very, very niche practice, almost like someone compared it once to like collecting baseball cards. It's sort of like a like, like a hobby that some people have, but no one really takes it seriously, you know, and yeah. it's unfortunate. But yeah, it was never I mean, it, it, after the war, especially it was dead. Like it was just like they had seven universities that would practice it. And who knows how many students they have, like what have like maybe 50 people in each one of them practicing. Mm -hmm. That's my guess. I don't know. So we're talking like what a total of like maybe 500 Japanese. It's not. It was not popular. I don't know details, but it was nowhere near as mainstream as the the, the Olympic rule set. You know was. Um, but you know it's it's nonetheless it's a very interesting style. Like it's um, I think it's in some ways it's a more complete version of the Olympic rule set because it allows for more, right? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, do you see like jujitsu heading into Olympic anything ever, or do you see it standing into like IBJJF, ADCC thing, kind of standing alone? Uh, well, you, you got to remember that you know everything from IBJJF to ADCC to the Olympics—they're all—they're all privately owned. Mm -hmm. They're not public mm -hmm. institutions. People forget, but they think the Olympics is something that belongs to. You know, people, but Olympics is, is privately owned. They're, they're looking at ticket sales, just like IBJJF is looking at, you know, everyone's trying to make, I mean, ADCC is sort of charity. Like ADCC cannot stand on its own for a minute. Like they are not even right. close to being profitable. That's, that's, that's chic money right there. It's, you know, right, right. artificially you know, creating a, a, a prestigious tournament. IBJJF is, is profitable. The Olympics are profitable. So they're looking at ticket sales. So if the yeah. Olympics ever feels that they will, be able to sell jiu-jitsu tickets, they will make it an Olympic sport. And they're not going to be under IBJJF. They're going to create their own rule set. They're sure. not going to – they are going. They can do whatever they want. It's just that the question is, is jiu-jitsu going to sell tickets at the Olympics? My, my guess is that it's not interesting to the Olympic Committee. That's what it comes down to. I mean, they were trying to ban wrestling, most traditional of all, you know, Olympic sports. 
and they were about to ban it, right? So imagine yeah, they, if you just are going to yeah. bring a new martial art. Right. Yeah, yeah they pretty much got away with banning wrestling and enough people bitched about it and brought it back. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was it. So. That, that was it was a huge world campaign to bring it back. But I, I don't because for those reasons, I don't I don't think so. the other thing you got to keep in mind, too, is jujitsu has a lot of practitioners, but it has no fans. I think a lot of people miss that. A lot of people that's believe that. Yeah, they yeah. they they like that's how they, they organizations like these professional leagues that have in you have in the US, like you see them all over flow grappling. It's all artificial money. Like there's no one's profitable. No one's making any money from these leagues. Because right. they dump like $300,000 into a production. And you think they're making that much in ticket sales? No way. No. Not even close. They're, they're losing. These guys are losing like 80, 90% of their investment every time they do this. It's just that it's a passion project. These guys got money. They get happy about hanging out, right? Like, you know, people they admire and they're the big boss and they think they're going to the next Dana White. And, and then sure. very quickly they, they realize it's like it's not easy to make money from jiu-jitsu because jiu-jitsu people – don't pay because they, they're all competitors themselves. Right. It's like getting NBA players to pay to watch an NBA game. You're not going to get guys from that play in the NBA to pay for NBA. They're not going to watch it for free, but they're not going to pay for it. Right. And, and that's what the people miss in jiu-jitsu. It's not a, it's not a spectator sport. It never, I mean, look at wrestling. They struggle. I mean, judo, is it judo spectator sport? Like somewhat, a lot of people have done judo, but I mean, most people are, are watching our, our practitioners themselves. It's not like football. Like people have never stepped foot in the football field are fanatic about football. That's true. You know, it's completely different. And people, they think they can make jiu-jitsu in an NFL or NBA. I'm like, that's a pipe dream, man. It's just yeah. not doable. Do you think like there is a way to make it more mainstream? Like, is there a way to make like like fight to win, for instance? Like that's a pretty spectator friendly organization or what do you think? I would say I would say that they're the only professional organization that is profitable. Okay. And it's because they have a very different model. They yeah. target locals. So if I do a tournament in your local hometown and you're not used to having a lot of events and you bring a bunch of blue belts over and that blue belt's going to feel like that's the biggest, most important fight of his life, he's going to sell 30 tickets because he's going to bring all his high school friends. He's going to bring his mom, his dad, his uncle. So now you have ticket sales and a very, at a very low budget because they're all blue belts, purple belts. You don't have to pay them very well. Maybe you have one super fight to spice things up. You sell some pay-per-views like that. Right. But there's not, it's not, a, it's, a, it's, it's different from like a, a Kasai or a third coast grappling where they have a card with like 10 super fights and every single one of these guys are being flown in. You got to fly in their coach. You got to pay, you know, at least he's got to get paid like at minimum of like two, three grand a fight. So we're going to pay 10, 20 grand a fight. So you do the math and you very quickly get up to $300,000 on these, some of these shows. Whereas right. fight to win, you have one super fight, one super fight, you know, more than sometimes like no. And then just the rest of the guys are all locals. They're smaller names, but those are the guys who are driving ticket sales. So it's a very different model. That model I could see working. Like that, like, okay, on a small scale, it's never going to be ADCC. It's never mm -hmm. going to be ABJJF, but that model can work. Um, but the rest of what people are doing, like the Meta Morris model, it's, it's just, it, you see these guys losing money every single time. And I watch it from a distance. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm like, oh, that's yeah, a rich yeah. guy. He's about to lose two, he's going to lose $2 million. He's going to realize that it's way too much work, that it's not that fun to be, you know, lead an organization that, uh, 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 and he's going to quit. He's going to realize, you know what, I'm done. And I've seen this film so many times and it's just going to keep happening because people are trying to do something that's not doable. Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> That's cool. Oh, um, hey, on an off note, um, 
Did you ever teach at Extreme Couture? Yeah, I taught there for about a year. Yeah. What What year? Two thousand eight. Yes, that was you. Okay, I took a whole day of classes there once, and I knew who you were, but I'd never seen you. And I was like, yeah. I think I just took a bunch of classes from Robert Drysdale. That might have been him. <laughs> you taught a clock yeah. choke from like a guard, like a guard escape, and like I was my choke for years. <laughs> and um, that's awesome. That's funny. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I taught there for about a year before I uh, I opened my own place, right? And um, but um. Yeah, it was it was a good experience. I met a lot of friends there. I mean, still good friends with everyone there. That was a cool. That was some cool classes, man. That was fun. That was the first real jujitsu class I'd ever taken. I'd just been doing like MMA grappling for a few years by then, and I was like, yeah. I'm in Vegas. I got married the next day, and so everyone was like asking me stories. First thing I'm telling you, I trained at Extreme Couture with Robert Drysdale, and oh yeah, I got married too. Um, uh, <laughs> 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 but that was oh man, yeah. I wish like I, I've. Oh, thank you. Finally confirmed it. I could I had no idea if it was you or not. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Those are good times. That was perfect. Um, so you've you've won IBJJF championships, you won ADCC championships. You've, you know, kind of split that and you're like the first American to do that, right? Um yeah, I think I'm the only one too. Um, you know, especially I might be the only one in the last one too, because the way the sport is going, it's becoming more individualized. Like you get guys like Mike Mutsumesi, they only want to win in the gi. They have no interest in fighting no gi. Exactly. On the other, you get guys like Gordon Ryan, you know, who only want to do no gi. They're not interested in the gi. And as this this split continues, I think it's less yeah. likely we're going to have someone that's going to win both. But you, you never know. I, actually, funny, it's like I never thought about that because I won the IBJJF Worlds in 2005. The ADCC in mm-hmm. 2007. So we're talking, it's been a minute, right? And it wasn't yeah. until like, like maybe like six months ago, like someone mentioned that. And that's when I realized I had been the only American to win the two most important jiu-jitsu tournaments in the world. Like, oh shit, I never even thought about that. So it went on the, <laughs> I think on the back cover of the book as like about the author, right? And that, yeah. so like people are aware of that now, but I wasn't aware of it until like six months ago. I kid you not. <laughs> that's <laughs> hilarious. It, and never even crossed my mind like because people look for stuff to market like you know sure. it's a pretty cool marketing tool but I, I i never thought of this it was never important to me but yeah. at some point you go you know like marketing is helpful i i just never cared about it so it was i wasn't thinking about things to market but that was i mean it, it is useful i suppose and it gives you you know credibility when there's so many good grapplers out there everyone's trying to to be credible um so um yeah but there are some really good guys out there, people that have certainly done a lot in the art, regardless of nationality. And I, I, I never put myself amongst the, 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 the best or anything, but I, I was up there. I, I competed against the best. I've beaten some of them. I've lost to some of them. But it was, I think my dream was always, I think everyone wants to be the most dominant guy with everything they do, right? That's what everyone wants. But I think I was close there for a minute, but I, I don't think I was ever the most dominant guy in the world. Like it was... There are always guys that, you know, guys like Roger were just like Roger could say that. They're like a, maybe a handful of people that could say, I was for a minute there, I was invincible in the world. Like no one could beat me. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a very, it's a very competitive sport. And it's getting more competitive too. That's the other thing, you know, like yep. as the sport grows, you have more and more people, you know, drawn to it. You get high, you know, more 
uh, competitive people with a lot of talent and it's grown in that regard. But at the same time, people have a lot more access to information, you know, like it's gotten easier to learn. Like back in my, when I started training, we didn't, there's no YouTube, there's no instructional sets were rare. So you had to learn by watching, you had to learn by trial and error, you know, and mm-hmm. it was, it was a lot harder to, to learn jujitsu. It was just, but there was a, there was an effort that you made too. Like it was, um, it was an exercise to try to learn without the help of anyone, which is mm. very challenging, but I appreciate it because it really taught me how to think, you know, it's one thing to have someone digest something for you versus you like watching something and going back to the gym next day and trying to figure out what the person was doing. It's like solving a puzzle. It's actually a fun exercise. And I think the newer generations, they miss out on that because all they've got to do is press play and it's all broken down to them yeah. in detail. I agree. Yeah. And I used to do that a lot too. Um, we're pretty close to the same age. Um, I'm, I'm 40. So I, I grew up in that era too of, it was hard to get, to get video. It was hard to meet people. It was hard to learn things. So you go to a seminar or you just get like a, you get like a snippet of somebody on tape and just study the hell out of it and try it and do it. And, um, it is a, it was a different world. Yeah. Yeah. And and I hate to be like, Oh, grandpa, like all oh, my days were better. Like I try not to be nostalgic like that, but you know, I think you, you got to take the, the good and the bad. Like there, there are good things about the internet. There are great things about technology. And there are things that are really made the world worse in my opinion. Like they didn't really improve on the world, you know, and, and, and jujitsu too, like jujitsu. I think the culture is very, very soft. Like it's gotten very, very, like everyone's like a, cry baby man like i can't yep. i mean we, we would have like you would get slapped in the like, we would have like daily your jacket off and we would slap the shit out of each other like borderline <laughs> mma and that was practice <laughs> but you know, and and if you do that today people will call the police like right. we would run the gauntlet on people if they didn't have to get promoted to a new belt to run the gauntlet on them if they said something stupid in class we would run the gauntlet <laughs> on them just for fun yeah they you say anything dumb and then, and, and then, and then, but today they call the police. You know, you're going to lose students. <laughs> right. Okay? Like yeah. I, we, we, we didn't have a lot of, like, we were judo geese and there was like karate geese. Sometimes we were a karate get taekwondo, be whatever. Like no one complained Like yep. you didn't choose your partners. You had to roll with a guy that's twice your size. Shut the fuck up and roll. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. now like I have people that the gi has to be tailor suited. It's got to be like brand new all the time. I got to roll with people my weight. If this guy's 10 pounds heavier than me, I can't roll with him. He's not my weight class. And I'm just watching. It's like, man, what happened? Like, everything's got <laughs> so soft, you know? It's like, I'm not that old. And I was like, I started training just over 20 years ago. But it's changed dramatically. And in some ways, it's gotten worse, you know? But everyone's a primo. Everyone's insta-famous now. That's the other thing. No one wants to pay the price. They want the reward. So you get these people that just started training and, you know, they're obsessed with Instagram and they make it right. Quotation mark. They make it because they have a lot of followers and they don't even like to train. They just like the popularity that the credibility, the the status that jujitsu grants them. It's not really the effort that they appreciate. Right. You know, so you get a a whole generation of little prima donnas. You see little kids acting like they're superstars. Every now and then I see like a five-year-old that he opens his gi and poses for pictures. You ever see those? Like they open their jackets like, yeah. They're like five years old and they got abs. I'm just watching that man. Have a lot of problems. It's gonna be like like one of those like teenage super uh, superstars, like celebrities. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it's a mess when they grow up, right? Because they can't they 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 grow up in the dysfunctional world. Uh, and I'm seeing that in jujitsu. I think a lot of it is just very very dysfunctional. It's mentally unhealthy. 
but you know, this is my opinion. No. Yeah. I agree entirely. Like I started and I kind of like some of the tail end of that stuff and then grew into like what you're mentioning, kind of the prima donna stage and stuff. And I just like, I don't yeah. get it. <laughs> like, you know, I understand, I don't do a ton of Instagram stuff, honestly. Like I like to just stay in the shadows a little bit. Um, but everyone yeah. wants to just be out on the front pages, like for, for doing the yeah. same arm bar that everyone else has done for 10,000 years. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, you know the thing, the internet, it, it gives everyone the illusion that they're more important than they are. Because right. if you have like, for you to be, have like a nice quality picture taken of you, like in the 80s, you had to be a celebrity to have yeah. like, oh, wow, I look amazing with that background, the mountains, the water. I look like a supermodel or I look like a badass athlete. But today with like, everyone's got a phone, everyone's got like good quality you know, cameras with filters and everyone looks like a superstar. Everyone's mm -hmm. a rock star. Everyone feels like one. And then, you know, and they get, and everyone's going to be rich too, right? Everyone's going to, you know, have a yacht and you're going to have like 20 bitches on a yacht and you're going to have a <laughs> private jet and you're an entrepreneur and you know how to do it all, but you don't know how to do shit in reality, right? You're right. just pretending. And it's created a very artificial world. Everyone's pretending they have money. They don't. And then you, they normally don't. They're just talking about it, right? Everyone acts to, and we're teaching people to play the part, not be the part, right? That's what social media has done. And, and it's lingered. It's it's made its way into, into jujitsu where you get a lot of guys that aren't even that good, but people put them on pedestals because, you know, they talk the talk. And then you get guys that are like the real deal that, but they don't have an Instagram account, you know, so no one knows who they are. And it's, it's become a world of pretending. Like it's become a very, very, you know, it, and martial arts shouldn't be about that. Martial arts is about the reality of things. Like that's why we like it. It's about honest. You can't pretend to be good on the mats. You're either right. good or not. You're going to win. You're going to lose. You can't talk your way into winning. Try to talk yeah. your way into submitting something. You can't do it. You have to tap. <laughs> it's very real. It's very honest and it, it teaches you how to be honest with yourself. It ought to teach you that, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think in a way there's there's somewhat of a conflict between the true spirit of, of martial art, which is about reality and truth, and a generation that is being taught how to pretend. And I think it's somewhat of an internal conflict that a lot of people um, struggle with. And, you know, I don't think anything good can come out of that. Like, it's certainly detrimental to the art, in my opinion. It's gotten a very strange direction. Yeah, I, I've always understood martial arts to be kind of facing the shadow and embracing that part and, you know, improving yourself from it and not just making a false reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, th think about the guy who was a fake in the gym, the guy. No one liked that guy. Remember, like the guy yeah. who's always talking and talking about training and he's bragging and, you know, he thinks he's so much better than he is. And like everyone hated that guy. Right. And I feel like everyone has become that guy. Like I want to watch, like, especially <laughs> younger kids. It's like, it's most of your students, you know, the ones that are really into jujitsu, like jujitsu, like the, the fanatics, right? Like they, it, it's become the norm. And if you, and if you say something or, you know, act differently, you're a hater or, you know, or it causes cognitive dissonance because that's, and that's, that causes it on people because sometimes you are, you get guys who are highly successful, but they're not, they're not pushing for popularity at all. And that confuses people because they go like, wait a second, like, why do you only have 2,000 followers if you're three times world champion? And this other guy has 500,000 followers and he's not, it, it causes people to get, we no longer know where the hierarchy is. The hierarchy has been thrown on its head because we don't even know the good from bad anymore, right? Because our our way of analyzing things, of, of like, how do we set the hierarchy of the world's got flipped on its head 
Like it's, it's, you know, it's, uh, the goal is no longer to improve. The goal is to brag and pretend that you're, you know, or be popular, I guess. It's, it's a completely different set of hierarchies to the martial arts world. And it's, it's, it becomes kind of like a Hollywood thing. Like you're supposed to be famous for being famous, not necessarily have any skill sets. Um, and, and martial arts should not be about that. And that's, um, you know, but that's the old man talking, I guess. Uh, I try to teach differently in my gym, but it's, it's a losing battle. It really is because the second you give people reality, right. And you tell them the truth, they're not that good. Right. Mm -hmm. They don't like you. They don't, they don't, they don't want to hear it. They, they want the bullshit. Like, no, 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 no. Tell me, tell me, make me feel good. I literally have that in the gym. Like, Rob, you don't fake me. You don't make, you don't make me feel good. Like I hear shit like that. Like I literally had athletes tell me this. Like, you know, who was the other one? Like, this is not my love language. I had one of my students, right? This is not my love language. And I'm like, what? Dang, love language. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I need, I need, I need, I need words of affirmation. And I'm thinking to myself, you need to shut the fuck up and try to do. <laughs> words of affirmation. Like, you know, I, I, and I'm talking to people that want to be champions here. I'm like, I just want to yell at you. Yeah. I just want to, that's what I'm, that's my job is to make you better. And right. I'm going to do that by telling you how much you suck. I'm not going to tell you by making you feel good. You know, like, that's, well, you, how do you think you'll get better? By being a pat on the back all the time? That's what Facebook is for. You know, like, tell you all how awesome you are. I, and I, I can't stand because it's detrimental to them. Yeah, it's true. detrimental to them. There's no, like, tough love is, that's how you get good. Like, you don't want a coach that keeps telling you how awesome you are. You want a coach yelling at you, telling you how much you suck and how what you got to work on to fix it. Yep. Right. That's the kind of coaching I've always, I, I wanted that kind of coach. I had a certain moments in my life. That's the best coach I've ever had. But you know, we're talking about people that just want to feel good all the time. So you can't really you give them a dose of reality and they don't like you. Like it's a, no, no, it's not what I want to hear. Why can't you just make me feel good? Right. Right. Yeah. So it's got, it's become very strange. Like it's, it's, it's some of a contradiction because in theory it's, it's about greatness and excellence and achievement and, and, and battle and struggle but the reality, like, people don't want those things. So they, they want the, the the reward that comes from all that, but not necessarily the, the the price you have to pay to achieve that. Yeah, sure. Um, I imagine you probably had those coaching moments leading up to your 2005 and 2007 victories, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we had a we had I, I have had good coaches and and bad. I've always had good friends, good relationships with all my coaches, but. The best ones were the ones that really, you know, were pushing me to the limit the whole time and never really, they never really told me I was doing good. They, they always right. wanted you. They, they probably thought that, but they wanted you wondering. Sure. You know, they didn't want you to get comfortable. They, they prefer you with a little anxiety of like, am I good? Am I good? Am I good? Like, I think that's a better place to be than, sure. oh yeah, I'm doing great. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, can you like recount your training at all? Like obviously one's gi, one's no gi. Like what were the key differences in training? And then like, how'd you feel when you won? I, it, it, there's not, there's not such big of a difference between gi and no gi. I think that the only reason people feel that it's a big difference is because they focus on the differences, right? It's confirmation bias. There's like a hyper focus on the differences and, not much to say about the similarities, but our training was was always pretty much gi. We did gi the whole time, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I said if I told you we trained once a week without the gi, I'd be lying. For ADCC, we took the gi's off our gi's off for like 
two months before ADCC. That was it. About mm -hmm. two months before. Then it was all, no, it was two months of Nogi, and that, that was our ADCC preparation. And we had the most, in 2007, we had the most successful camp in the history of the sport. We went to ADCC with uh, five competitors, and we brought home seven trophies with five competitors. Wow. Damn. So we did extre extremely well. I mean, to this day, like, no one has matched that, those results. And it may never be matched. Like, you know, it's hard enough to get a team of five people in ADCC, let alone have bring home seven trophies with those five people. So, um, but it was, it was all key preparation and then the no gi was like very close to the tournament. And I, I don't even know if that's better or not. Maybe, you know, maybe training no gi the whole time is better. I don't know, but it, it didn't cross our mind to like, to say I'm a no gi grappler, I'm a gi grappler. It was just like, you're jujitsu, your job's to make people tap. Shut up. You should, you know, it's yeah. like, that's, yeah. that's what you do. Like it, it exactly. doesn't matter what the other person is wearing. You should be able to make them tap. That's right. sort of like the, the approach. No one really, anyone who whined about it's no Gita or Gita, they would be made fun of. Like we would literally bully and tease anyone who would dare, you know, complain about any aspect of training. Like it was right. frowned upon <laughs> to complain. The old days. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, 2007 is when you choked Marcelo. I mean, he's arguably the goat of jujitsu, right? And you beat him that time. How did that feel? Uh, it was good. Like I, I always tell, um, you know, because I'm, I'm heavier than Marcelo, so people hate on me because no one likes the big guy winning, right? Like if you're a big guy, you're the villain automatically. You know, how could you ever yeah, yeah. be the, the good guy if you're if you're stronger? Like clearly, you right. know, you're the evil guy. You're always a bad guy in the story, right? Like, well, I'm not my fault that I'm heavier. Like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> Cut a leg off? Like, just, you know, I, I just never, it, it's just, it's a lot of it is just, yeah. I think it's just hate, you know, but Marcel has right. a big following because he's a very beautiful guy to watch. Like he's, I, I've never thought my jujitsu was particularly beautiful. I think it was efficient. It is efficient, but it's never been pleasant to watch, you know, as Marcel has always had a very beautiful jujitsu sort of style. It's very, it's very aggressive, very coordinated. He's very athletic. Too. He doesn't look at people don't realize how actually strong and you know fast he is, but I, I'm the original Marcelo Garcia fan. Like I've been watching his matches since I was a blue belt. Like I've always known who he was, and I've always enjoyed watching him. So I was, I walked in there like very um, ready for what I was going to be, you know, what I was walking into. Like I knew him very well. I knew his. I certainly knew him better than he knew me. Sure. So somewhat of a dark horse in that tournament. I don't think a lot of people expected me to win, which was which made the win so much more significant because here's the guy who is probably the Michael Phelps of, of, you know, no gi grappling. And he's getting beat by a guy who is a relative newcomer in, in, mm -hmm. in the no gi scene. And I beat him in like two minutes in, like he didn't score a point on me. And I just, I caught him right away early in the match. And I think it was, it was a shocker to everyone. No one in my camp was really shocked. Everyone was happy, but no one was shocked. Sure. You know, because I think, uh, I think I was more shocked than my teammates were because I think that they've always had more belief in me than I had in myself. Oh yeah, for sure. Good day though. So, Absolutely. Yeah. That's cool. Absolutely. I just had to kind of recount that story a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but now I guess getting into the book um, or some of my questions with the book, do you want to kind of break down again, for people who know nothing of jujitsu, like what it is, because it's realistically, it's just a comprehensive history and a collection of interviews breaking down the history of jujitsu. 
Yeah, um, yeah, the idea came about. I have a history major, and um, I never really bothered looking into the history of jujitsu until like maybe three, four years ago when I started researching this, and it became sort of like I wouldn't say an obsession, but I became very interested in bringing this story to light. Like, wait a second, there's a lot about the history here that we don't know. You know, we, we everyone had was that cookie cutter, you know, traditional version that Maeda taught Carlos, who taught Helio, or maybe Helio learned by watching. And now, you know, now we uh, we have Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because the Gracie family, you know, rescued real Jiu-Jitsu from Judo, who was hiding real Jiu-Jitsu or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And once you start, like, studying this, once you start looking into it, you realize, like, there's a lot of holes in the story. It's very incomplete, really not so much inaccurate like there's some inaccuracies but mostly incomplete it's a much better history than originally told and you know i just wanted to do my part of bringing it to light and i started reaching out to a lot of these historians and researchers people have been digging into this for years and they had a story to tell but no one was really paying attention so i figured like a documentary would be a great way of telling this story and the documentaries, we're well behind production. We've had a number of unforeseen problems. COVID didn't help, so we're far behind schedule. But uh, in the meantime, the, during the, 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 the lockdown, I actually wrote a book about it. It was originally an article about my memories of producing a documentary. And the article very quickly turned into a you know 100,000-some page document and uh, or 100,000-word document. And that was... That was um, it was fun. I, I I wrote it very quickly too. I, I think I wrote the whole thing in like three weeks. Oh, wow. It was wow. during lockdown. Yeah. I was bored out of my, I mean, editing took way longer. It took like a month or two to like maybe more, maybe closer to two months to edit the book. But the actual writing I did in like three weeks, it was very, very quickly. Um, granted a big chunk of the book consists of interviews. So it's not me writing it, right. It's just interviews. So, so it's probably two thirds of maybe half, at least half the book. So, but it was it was fun. Like I, I it was fun telling the story of the documentary and how we reached these conclusions and then talking to these grandmasters and giving a little background to the story of before the interview and after the interview and my my approach to these interviews and what they had to say and to the history of jiu-jitsu overall. So you get a little bit of I think it's somewhat autobiographical too, because you know, it's my memories. So it's me in Brazil and Japan talking to these guys. So you're gonna get my version of events and you know, my opinion of things. Um, it's also, it was, it's also, you know, oral tradition, you know, we're interviewing all these grandmasters. We threw in, there's some articles, some, some, some jujitsu historical articles, you know, with original primary sources in there. So it's somewhere academic as well. And the book is a little bit, it's a bit like it's an oral tradition. You're going to get my opinion. You're going to get almost like a traveling journal and you get some, get some academic work in there all like mixed up in this one book. And I wanted to make it something entertaining. I didn't want it to be a boring read. A lot of history books have that reputation for being boring because if you just dump facts on people, there's no story. And I wanted to write it like it was a story. It was a story of me discovering the history of jujitsu. Right. So it it reads almost like a traveling journal and I, that's kind of what I vision I have for it. And I think it worked. I think a lot of people who read the book say like, no, it was not, it was a very light read. It was fun. It was one of those books you can't put down. And I, I, I had people might get back to me and said they wrote the, they, they read the whole book in three days, you know, like many people actually. So, um, yeah, I felt like, okay, I think I, I, I accomplished what I set out to accomplish.
mine is a documentary that's not ready yet. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I really liked the connection between the interviews where it was just you writing about the adventure to get there. And then, and then after an interview where, where you just talked about how like your thoughts on it and what it, what it did to you. Yeah. You know, like, here's how I changed what I was thinking. Here's what I thought of the person. Here's what happened after dinner. Like the yeah. connections between the interviews was really the best part of the book. That was really cool. So, yeah, I, I, I wanted to, to make, if you, if you have to give some background, like, what am I doing there? Like, why is this guy important? What did I, because these guys had so much personality to them. They had so much to say that I feel that if I just put the interviews there, you can't relate to the, the character. Like I wanted to paint the character as best I could, you know, like some of them I was able to paint better than others. Uh, and, and I think that gives, it gives like a face, it gives it some, some coloring to the reader. Right. So it's not just, Oh, here's an interview. Cause otherwise it's just, it, it's almost like, a, it, that's what makes it boring. Like the interview with no context would make it boring in my opinion. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be an easy read. And I think that the, the connecting the interviews the way I did was, was the right thing to do. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree entirely <laughs> for sure. Um, I mean, you interviewed so many people and I'm sure some, you know, stuck out more than others, but did you have any particular, connection or like uh like who are your top three favorite people i guess or like who really stuck out to you or who left an imprint on you oh man easy um not necessarily in this order but my top three were definitely hobson gracie tenzo's father armando read the guy with the big beard he was one mm -hmm. of helio's first black belts maybe first or second black belt he just passed away recently, actually. Mm -hmm. And the other one I really liked was Yuki Nakai in Japan. Yuki Nakai, yeah. I think, was he's an interesting guy because he is the bridge that unites. He, it, was, it was a perfect way of, and he's towards the end of the book. He was one of the last interviews, but it was a really good of wrapping up, good way of wrapping up the story because he comes from Kosei Judo, and then he fights Shuto, and then he loses to Hickson, and then he becomes the ambassador for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Japan, which is very ironic. He's the president of a Japanese federation of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? So, and he has some amazing sound bites. He's really cool. I, I think his interpretation of this whole story, because it, it gets repackaged in Brazil. It's a Japanese art. It's not a Brazilian art. Brazilians add a cultural twist to it that brought back the martial element of Judo that had died because of Olympic Judo. And Brazilians brought that back. They made it a more martial-oriented version of Judo. They call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And Yuki Nakai acknowledges all this and, you know, and he sees the story going back full circle and he sees himself as not just a representative of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but in some ways I think he sees himself as someone who is rescuing something that's really Japanese. It's interesting. I saw a video the other day. He's actually the coaching the Japanese Olympic team in Niwaza. Like they, he's like their, their Niwaza coach now, which I thought was awesome. That's wow. cool. Uh, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, so like there's there's at least funny because like I I I could see the the jujitsu and judo making this full circle, getting back together. There's a lot more cross training and overlapping between the two arts. It's no longer, I think, for a big chunk of my my experience as a martial artist, judo was something as removed to be as taekwondo was. It was completely outside of the jujitsu world. But I see more and more people making the transition, and you know, more jujitsu people are realizing the importance of stand up and. More judokas are 
realizing the importance of the groundwork. Like in France, and, and France is somewhat tyrannical when it comes to martial arts. Like judo has mm-hmm. such a rap on martial arts in France. It is illegal to put a, a, a jiu-jitsu tournament together or an MMA event. I don't know if you guys knew this. It's also illegal for jiu-jitsu? I knew MMA was, but... Yeah. No, and, and jiu-jitsu, you, you cannot run it. There's never been a, jiu-jitsu, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournament in, in France. They're no, going to allow it. It's insane. Nuts. It's insane. It's because judo has such influence in the Ministry of Education in France that they don't allow it. They don't want competition. It's ter- I mean, when I say tyrannical, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. Like, that's, there's just no. no other way to put it. Yeah, that's and, insane. But... But at the same time, they 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 have they acknowledge that there is a demand for Niwaza. So what they do is they have Niwaza tournaments in France now, run by the Judo Federation, and it's basically Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. But they had to cater to the demand of the, the their public, their audience, because they were losing so many members to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. They still are. They're losing. I mean, Judo is still bigger, but they're losing that battle because the rule set is somewhat stubborn into adapting, assimilating more groundwork. And if they've changed it, they have been changing over the years, but it's still a lot of resistance there because, you know, it's been too long just focusing on stand-up and not enough on the ground. So it's hard to bring these two arts back together. And even IBJJF is somewhat resistance to like penalized guard pull in my opinion, right? So I, I think there are moves that both sure. sports could make to bring them closer together. Right, I just don't know if they're going to do that or not. It may not be in their interest, but I think it would certainly be beneficial to practitioners if the two arts could, you know, be brought back closer together. Right. Very cool. Um, yeah, I think the the Yuki Nakai interview was probably my favorite as well. Yeah, that was a great one. Uh, just his connection to like his vision loss and like how you know his whole story really like the his his japan 95 tournament like you're saying like he lost to hickson and like the match before that is when he really got kind of beat up and his eye got beat up um and he just really kind of embodied like that japanese spirit i thought and like you're saying he's kind of preserving and keeping that alive just very cool yeah yeah he uh he's definitely like the i think he was like the 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 best representative of, of the, the wrapping up the story. He was a perfect guy. He he goes full circle with the story. My Brazilian jiu-jitsu comes back to Japan. It really is a full circle story. And I I, I wish I understood Japanese to be able to jump in on the interview and maybe get more out of him. But I don't speak a word in Japanese, and I think that might have hurt the, the production a little bit. Oh. Right, right. That's okay. I think it's great still, probably. Yeah, it's still, <laughs> the book was still good. Right. How is production going? As far as the documentary, uh, funny. Like I was going to Russia on Sunday to present. Uh, we have like a very close to final film oh, nice. uh, to present to the to the um, to the uh, the investor, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem was Russia closed down their borders and they're not allowing any foreigners in because of COVID. Yeah. So I'm trying to meet him in maybe Dubai later this month. And I want to show it to him. And we have some final things that got to get done. Like some, it's funny because like one little piece that's out of place can hold back the entire production. It's not, I understand why movies, like even Hollywood productions with a budget of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, they still take three years to film, you know, something like it's not something that can be done quickly. And you don't realize this until you're like, you know, it's a much smaller production, but a lot of moving parts, man. A lot of things can go wrong. Like it's not. It has been a very difficult thing to do. 
the good news is like it's getting better and better. We really have some amazing images and just piecing it together has been extremely difficult. Uh, especially cuz it's such a broad story. That's the other thing. It's not it's not it's something that requires 10 episodes, not 90 minutes. And we're trying to, you know, really compress 100 plus years of history, really 150 years of history into 90 minutes. And it's very hard to do. Is uh is the episode action a, a, is could that be a, a future thing then? Like could you could you get like um, a mini series somewhere and get the rest out? Honestly, uh, just to give an idea, post production of one hour of post production that's not production that's just like editing. Okay, okay. one hour can cost up to a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. If you're going to do it right, it's, it, they're not cheap. You, you know, you think, you know, oh, I added something on my phone here. I got this. Like, you know, it's probably going to cost 5,000 edit. Like, no, like you're going to spend between music, animation, color correction, editing, stock footage, you know, whatever, like legal fees, whatever else, copyrights, whatever you're, you're talking a hundred grand here very quickly. So if you do a 10 part series, everyone, that's, that's, ten, that's a million dollars in post production alone. Right. Okay. So Wild. it's they're very expensive. And then the, the truth of the matter is, as much as we love jujitsu, as much as people out there like it, I mean, it leaves a big question mark. Can you sell a million dollars worth of a documentary film in an age where people can just like stream it online and, you know, pirate it? Like, how do you make your money back? Right. That's the other problem. Okay. So it's, you know, it, this, for these reasons, like we decided to go with a smaller film, like a 90 minute production. Because I, I don't think if we had 10 part series would have been too costly, way more work than it already is. And I don't think we would have, I'm not sure we would have made our money back. I mean, we'll find out. Like, let's see how well this sells. And I, I think it's a great film. We're talking about getting some film festivals and there's a potential to even win some awards here. Like, it's a very beautiful oh, nice. film. It's just that, it's just that it's, you know, it's new. Like, we don't know how the world is going to react to this. Like, is this going to be a hit? I, I, it's, it's, there's, no, there's nothing like it on the, in the jujitsu MMA market. Like there's no, I, I don't know of any documentary that talks about the history of jujitsu in depth or MMA for that matter. So wow. what do we compare it to? Like, how do we know, like Hollywood has plenty of compared you do a, you do an Avengers movie. You have an idea of what's going to sell because there's like 20 other Avenger movies, right? You have other superhero movies to base your sales off. Like, okay, now I can project to make this much money. In our case, we're, we have no idea how the public are going to react. Like, are people going to really want to watch this? Do people really care about the history of jiu-jitsu? Or is it just me, you know, someone who loves history? I think it's a little bit of people getting what they need without knowing that they needed it. <laughs> like, they're yeah. like, oh, shit, there's actually so much, and it goes so deep. And it's not just the cookie-cutter story that we're all fed at the beginning of jiu-jitsu class. Like... There's more to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like it. I, I think that, you know, knowing where you came from is super important. Knowing your roots, knowing. And I think history is about identity, too. It's, it's about the future of the sport. I think a lot of people miss that. They think the history is just like old numbers and dates and, you know, names that people who are dead and they don't matter. But history is knowing where you are. History is about, you know, understanding your present so you can plan a better future. And this is true for everything. This is true for your country. This is true for jujitsu. This is true for, for yourself. Like if you don't know who you are, like you have no idea what you're capable, what you're not, like you don't understand yourself. Right? Mm -hmm. Like how do you, 
How do you plan your life when you have no idea what your strengths and weaknesses are? Because you never paid attention at, you know, your own history. As a you know, much smaller example, like I think individually even, mm. like understanding yourself is is important for your own future. And I think when it, that's what history is about to me. It's it's it really comes down to that, like identity. And it's unfortunate. Most people don't don't care. They they think it's boring. I I think history is fascinating. I love it. I've always geeked out on history books. I I, I think this, the history is just a very rich history, and I think people are missing out by not learning about it. Uh, well, I mean, the book goes a long way to, I think, suck people into that because it is such an entertaining book that it that people aren't into history. I think they're gonna they're gonna learn something from it and maybe get into history. So just because of the way it's written. Uh, but, um, yeah, that was the plan. The plan was exactly that. It's like get people into, um, you know, reading some of the books I recommend to if you really want to get into it and. I just appreciated yeah. it. Like if I, if people walk away from this with a bigger, better appreciation for how jiu-jitsu developed in Brazil, I feel like it's mission accomplished. That's cool. Yeah, I felt uh, when I finished the book, the, the the recommended books are all things I'd already had on my list to get. So I felt kind of good about myself that I had done some homework. And I was like, oh, I am looking at the right stuff. But, uh, uh, <clears throat> but um, so in comparison to um, – all right, so you, okay, in the beginning, in the beginning of your book, you talk about um, the book that Hodger's mom wrote about her yeah. dad. Okay, I have that yeah. book, um, okay. and it was—it's a really good like family history, like oral family history, just stories yeah. of the family. I didn't really when I read it, I didn't see it as a history of jujitsu. I saw it as just like a, you know, a history of a very large family and all the fun stories they had to tell. Yeah. And, that was that's I, I I think she you know Hala's goal with that book was really to you know give her father a higher standing in the jujitsu world is like honor the memory of her father who was really the founder of the whole thing you got to give him credit like he didn't yeah. do it alone obviously but right. like what's the inception of what we now call Brazilian jujitsu like who it, it's Carlos crazy there's no way around it so he certainly I think it was necessary because the the, the spotlight was always on Helio. Who was in fact Carlos' student? People forget mm -hmm. that, but he was a student of Carlos Gracie. Mm -hmm. But he came across as the jiu-jitsu's patriarch, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it was somewhat of like a family feud that you know she wasn't going to let her father not be remembered in history. So I, I certainly admire her willingness and dedication to do this. The problem is that she's not a historian or a biographer. Like she doesn't. So she's just she's a daughter. Like mm -hmm. she's putting her father on a pedestal, you know, like she wants to mm -hmm. elevate her father. Like, and it's funny because it's very widespread in the family. That side of the family is that like Carlos was some kind of holy man. Like it's not something that they're, it's something they're very serious about. Like he could see things that no one else could see that he had paranormal abilities. Yeah. And uh, to, to me, that all strikes me as like, yeah, right. Yeah. But they're dead serious about it. like he knew things and he would see things and he would you know, you know, he would say something that would happen the next day and everyone's shocked. Like, you know, he has, and they truly believe that. Right. And that comes, if you read, you know, Kayla's book, it's very, very obvious that she's dead serious about her father's, you know, psychic paranormal abilities. Right. Yeah. It was very much you know, a book I, written by a daughter. It was like a tribute yeah. to her dad. Like it was very obvious. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a tribute to her father. And it, there's not a lot of jiu-jitsu history. You're right. Like when it comes to jiu-jitsu, I mean, it's obviously there's lots of overlapping, but it is a biography of her father and a biography of the family in some ways. Mm-hmm. But it's not a book about the history of jiu-jitsu. And that's where I wanted to differ from that. I didn't want to write a – because a lot of people, like especially the anti-Gracie camp, they go, oh, you should talk about all the bad stuff that Carlos and Helio did, right? Which is mostly their personal lives, right? Like their personal mm-hmm. lives, like you could talk about it all day. I mean, I, I touch on it in the book, but I never wanted to get into it because I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. It really – it's it's not going to make it a documentary, that's for sure, because it's not about – it's, I, I never wanted to make a film about the Gracie family. I wanted to make a film about jujitsu. It just so happens the Gracie family are, especially the Gracie brothers, Carlson and Helio, and later Carlson and, and Holes Gracie were just as important as Carlson and Helios, if you ask me, perhaps even more important in some ways. Yeah. But these guys are at the center of the story. So there's no way, if you tell the history of jujitsu in Brazil, like, and you name like, the most, the top 20 most important people, at least half of them are members of the Gracie family. So you can't go around that. It just is. But I never wanted to write a book about them. So that was, I think, the big difference between, you know, my book and Hala's book is that Hala book is, like I said, it's her father, it's her, uh, the daughter, you know, writing a, a homage to her father, make sure that his memory is is kept through her work, which which I think she accomplished. I think mm-hmm. I do recommend her book. I'm not a guy. I, I, but I, you gotta re, you gotta read in between the lines. You gotta be very careful because it's obviously very biased. Like it's not a fair account of things. It's just like my father was a holy man, and that's her perspective. And you know, you understand it's it's she is his daughter. Like what else is she gonna say? Like throw her dad under the bus? You know? Yeah. So you, as long as you read it that way, aware of that, then it's a very good read. You just gotta read in between the lines, and you'll get the better picture. Okay. Yeah, as I just I I at the beginning of your book where you kind of mentioned where you butted heads, I thought that was really odd because they're very different books. I didn't think they had anything to do with each other, and I just I thought that was weird that that um, Halo was angry about it for a while there. Well, I I think that no, she, she originally asked for a lot of money to be interviewed, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like I'm not, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that the the perception people have is that anyone who comes across with the narrative or comes brings about a narrative that is not the Gracie narrative is clearly a Gracie hater, which, you know, I was never my intention. In fact, I walked out of this with a greater appreciation for what some of the members of the Gracie family have done for jiu-jitsu. If anything, it's been, it has increased their standing in my view. If anything. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I should be biased. Like history should not be biased towards your nationality you can't be a good historian if you're going to write a book that's pro USA. That's not good history. That's yeah. fanaticism. That's not. Mm-hmm. You can't like you know because and, and because I'm Brazilian American, I get shit for both countries because I have no issues <laughs> yeah. criticizing. Uh, it's funny. Like, I'm viewed as anti-American here, as anti-Brazilian in Brazil. Like you can't win, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's because people have this thing of the loyalty should trump you know their sense of justice or sense of accurate historical historical telling like if you're loyal to your country and you love your country then jiu-jitsu has to be brazilian right it has to be oh you don't love this country no this is the facts are the facts and they have nothing to do with your personal passions your personal passions are yours that's great you have them but once you put your historian hat on you got to check that passion at the door and you got to go i'm going to walk into this and i'm going to write things as they are 
and they can't be anti or pro-Gracie. They just have to be what they are. Just interpret the facts right down the middle, free of your ideology. Check your ideology at the door. Check your nationalism. Check your family name. Check the martial art that you practice. I'm very critical of jiu-jitsu, and I come from jiu-jitsu. The, the, the book reads almost as a, as, a, as a homage to judo, and I've never done a day of judo in my life. Like, I've never trained judo, but, like, it comes across as, like, oh, he speaks very highly of judo. It's like, it's how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's just me attempting to interpret the facts free of any personal biases. And I think it's, it's hard to do that. Even, like, and I, I don't think I was perfect. Like, looking back, like, I probably made mistakes here and there. I could have been better about certain things. But that was my, my goal walking in was to be entirely impartial and un, as unbiased as, as, as I could be. Mm-hmm. I'd say you accomplished that phenomenally. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Um, So I don't know if it's, I'm sure you can speak more to it. It, I've read a little bit, um, but were there accusations when Maeda was in the U.S. that he was a spy? Well, he was, he uh, he did a, um, and it's not, the the Uyghurs are the word spy, we think of 007, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Maeda was certainly reporting back to to Japan, like as as a as a member of the Japanese community in Brazil, as a ambassador for Japanese immigrants. Like, you know, you understand where Brazil and where Japan were in the 1930s, 40s. All right. We're talking Japan is an ascending imperial power. So, you know, the Amazon crossing the Pacific and establishing a base in the Amazon is not. When not, it's not an unreasonable strategy for people that had a very ambitious project, right? Like it's an empire. That's what it, the empires do. It expands. So I think spy is the wrong term. But he, there, there was no doubt that he maintained a relationship with, with the Japanese. There's, you know, he did like the, his relationship to Japan. And is, uh, I mean, to what extent, we don't know. Uh, but it's it, remember they're not they're not citizens they're subjects we're talking about an em, em, emperor here right so it is his duty to report like you don't have a choice it's one of those things where you're loyal to to the Japanese Empire now how loyal he was how much reported what was said we don't know but they, it is interesting though that he got accused three different places of the same thing like I've traveled the world and I've never been accused of being anything like. That. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I, I'm guessing that you guys were never accused of being doing intelligence work anywhere no, you've no. been. Like, you know, but most people I know have it, right? Maeda gets accused of that at least in three different countries. So it is telling. I, there's no evidence for it, for the record. I'm not trying to start a conspiracy theory. Right. But when you start writing history, you start with the hunch. You can't, you can go, you can go about writing like something, you know, Maeda learned jiu-jitsu from Jesus Christ, for example. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's something outlandish like that. But no serious historian is going to bother digging into something like that because your hunch tells you you're not going to find any evidence, right? Mm-hmm. But in the case of Maeda doing intelligence work for the Japanese empire, I don't think it is unreasonable. It might be completely off. We don't know. But, like, if I had the time, this is one of those things where, like, it is worth digging into this. There might be something to this, right? Because you get a hunch that it is considering what Japan's stance towards the Pacific and the Americas was in the 1930s and 40s, it is not an unreasonable thing to suggest. It is not an unreasonable hypothesis to pursue. Now, here comes the hard work. Prove it. Back it up. 
that's mm-hmm. 99.999% of the work, right? Yeah. How are you gonna back that up? But all, all history, all science starts with a hunch. Like you have like a gut feeling like, okay, there's something here and you start digging. And 99% of the time you find nothing, but the 1% of the time you find something that's relevant, you add it to the body of knowledge, we made progress, right? That's, that's in theory, that's how it's supposed to work. But Maida is definitely an interesting character, even though, like I, I said this before, like, and I say this in the book, his role in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is grossly exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Sure. He doesn't really do anything. Like, he barely does anything. He creates a gym, teaches there a little bit, takes off to take care of more profi- uh, profitable endeavors. And he leaves the gym to all these Brazilians. And Carlos Gracie learns some judo in that gym. And that's that. And that's the extent of Maida's role in jiu-jitsu. He just opens a place and takes off. <laughs> and yeah. everyone's like, oh, this guy started Brazilian. He's a father. He's not <laughs> a father of anything. He's an interesting guy, but he barely belongs. I mean, I wouldn't rank him top five in the history of jiu-jitsu. Like, I, I don't think he makes a top ten, now that I right. think about it. It's just that he has been the center of the story for decades. So the idea of questioning it, like, it, it causes cognitive dissonance. So people look like, what do you mean he's not the center of everything? That's impossible. But if you actually look at what he actually did, he didn't do much at all. Right. So he's the facilitator of history, but not actually the creator of anything. I mean, he and, and it would go, oh, but if it weren't for him, Carlos would have not had learned jiu-jitsu because he had to open the gym. And I'm like, okay, true. But if it weren't for Carlos's mother, Carlos Gracie would not have been born. Are we going to put her in the pantheon of the greats of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Right. Because without her, Carlos Gracie wouldn't have been born. Is that how we write history now? Right. Right. And, and uh, people, and, yeah. And, yeah, people, they seem to think that because he did something and Carlos learned Jiu-Jitsu because of that, that he belongs in the hierarchy above Carlos. We have to judge people what they do. Who teaches who is not important, but what did they actually do? And in terms of spreading Jiu-Jitsu and, or Judo for that matter in Brazil, Maida doesn't do that much. He's practically retired when he makes it to Brazil. So this is my opinion. Some people might disagree, but like I don't see Maeda as the center of anything. I think he's an interesting guy for a variety of reasons, but not. I don't see him as the center of the history of judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Right. Very cool. Cool. And I want to say judo, judo in Brazil. Okay, obviously not international judo, but many people see him as the as a father to judo in Brazil as well, which I don't. I don't think is uh, fair. Sure. Uh, do you see yourself like digging into like more projects, like more individualized projects, or you think the kind of comprehensive one will be it? Uh, I thought I'm, there's a part of me that wants to do a sequel to the documentary and I have a film about, um, you know, I thought about calling it the open guard. (laughs) Yeah. Carlson Gracie. George Medee and um, Holes Gracie, who are three oh, characters that to me are very important, but they're very underplayed. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to call it the open guard. Um, but it all depends on sales, like how well is this going to go, right? Sure. Uh, I have a lot of footage from Closed Guard that could probably be used for a future film. Like I'm not against you know, doing something like that, but it depends on sales. It's a lot of work. This has been very contentious. Like it's been very, very difficult for for me having no experience, you know, walking into something, you know, basically thrown into sharks, people that know, you know, it's, it's like, imagine throwing yourself in a new job and, or a jujitsu term and you're really a white belt, but you're thrown in the purple belt division or the brown belt division. <laughs> and you're expected to keep fighting until you win. And then you're going to win eventually, but 
it's going to take you a while to be able to beat these guys. Like it's, I'm a white belt here. Wait a second. And my lack of experience and my overconfidence in believing I can do things (laughs) definitely, definitely worked against me. And, and it's, if it were just a documentary, it'd be fine. But I feel like this happens everything I do, but you know, I, I, I don't regret it. I, I, I loved every, this is like some of the best moments of my life were, were filmed this documentary. And, you know, I, I love the journey, but I'm too mind if I want to go through this again. I don't know. Possibly. Right. But I, right, right now I, I can't even, I'm too busy to even think about it. Right. Three, four, five, five years from now, possibly. Right. Just get the documentary rolled out and everything and then see how it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to say, so like um, a kind of a lighter question. Uh, so you have the posters that you know are in the back of the book and you have them for sale on the website, like the, all the, the, the posters with like the yeah. old, how did you discover those? Uh, the, the discovered what? So um, like the promotional posters that they were putting out on Instagram and stuff and you have in the back of the book, they say, you know, closed guard, but it's the old like Japanese immigration to, um, to uh, Brazil poster or, you know, it's the people lined up on the dock. Oh, um, that's all the, that's, that's all Brazilian national library, the Brazil digitized, which, which started this whole thing really is technology is the digitizing of the Brazilian national library. Cause these files were all in like, old boxes in Brazil and you know like someone would have to physically go there and look at you know one million old newspapers to find one decent picture of you know of someone that's relevant to jiu-jitsu history but once you digitize all that and it's a search engine and you can search you know keywords that facilitates research a lot so that's what started everything so those pictures are all from the Brazilian National Library they're all public domain oh cool okay very cool um, but kind of just looking and looking through everything and like all the grandmasters and all sort of the older guys you interviewed were all very fulfilled with their lives. They were all very happy. Like they all seemed very content with their choice of a jujitsu lifestyle. Like I always, I thought that I found that to be comforting, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think they were happy. I think that they were all at peace. Like I found peace. I think above all, very different life strategies. Like they, I feel that they all got to the same place at the end of their life through very different means. I'm contrasting, right, two of my favorite here, like Hobson Gracie and Armando Breeden. Mm-hmm. Very different people. Very different people. But they were both at peace at the end of their life. Like you talk to them both. Like in my my final questions with some of these grandmasters were like, so where are you at in your life? Like, what was the future? Like, what's the, how do you feel about any wisdom, right? Like, and and if you listen to their answers, you can see that these guys are very much at peace with themselves in the world. Like they're very happy, you know, with the life they lived. And yeah, I'm sure they have regrets, but they don't dwell on them too much. And I, that's how I would like to be at the end of my life. I'd like to look back and be proud and go like, you know, I had a good life. It wasn't perfect, but, you know, no one is. And forgive myself for my mistakes and have good memories and, you know, go out with a smile on my face. Like, I think there's nothing more you can ask for. Definitely. And I, I got that from all these guys. That's that's exactly what I got from them. And I don't know if it's because of jiu-jitsu. Maybe sure. it is, but jiu-jitsu certainly played a role in that, in that in their journey. Whether people who don't have a passion in life, whether it's, you know, they don't have – 
maybe music or literature or jiu-jitsu to be passionate about, will they have that same kind of smile? I don't know. I I just well, I, I don't know that these masters did, and I would like to be like them one day. That's that's what I took from this. Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful lesson to take from it all. That's what I took from it. So mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah. Ah, all right. Well, um, winding down then. Um, oh, let's see. As far as your own training goes, like, because um, you, you said in the book that for a second you were just, you would refer to jujitsu as Brazilian judo for a while. Yeah. And has it has it changed your own your your training or your teaching, like how you approach techniques, how you approach strategies? Um, I think there's definitely been like I, I've you know, especially after you know fighting MMA, I've put more emphasis on takedowns than most jujitsu j- uh, gyms do. I don't think that has anything to do with the documentary. I think that's something I I have been doing more and more of over the past four or five years, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I, I've learned how to appreciate Brazilian culture, but I could see the good and bad in it. And the same with Japanese. And I think that comes across in the book. Like I, I know what I like about the, the, the judo tradition, about the, the, the respect, the hierarchy, the humility. I appreciate these things. Right. And I don't see it in Brazilian jiu-jitsu anymore, but at the same time, like, I appreciate the creativity Brazilians have, right? They add in an aspect that I think is missing a lot of other martial arts. Like, and it's, I think it's the key ingredient to BJJ's success. It's not just that it's got a good history and that, you know, you had Hoist Gracie in the UFC and whatever, you know, it changed the way people saw fighting, whatever. But I think there's another element and it has to do with the relaxed manners, you know, and I, and I mentioned this in the book, like there's something very appealing to people who work a nine to five kind of lifestyle get to the gym, you know, straight from work and they get to the gym at 6 p.m. and they get there and everyone's laughing and everyone's happy. And it's a very, and it's very um, non-formal. It's very Brazilian. It's very laid back. I don't think people realize how Brazilian that is, you know, and, and, and it, it, like every culture, it's got its good and bad. You know, you can say, I prefer this. I prefer that. Like I, what I try to take from this is what is it that I like about judo? And I, I think I've definitely learned how to appreciate the Japanese way of doing things, which I hate stereotyping and generalizing, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, you go to Japan, you go to Brazil, you're going to have very different social experiences. Like you don't have to be, you know, that really tuned in to see the differences. There are some major differences. I, I guess I learned how to appreciate both. Like I try to remain like a happy, you know, like a happy energy on the, on the mats, some formality, not overly formal, but you just got to know where, that hierarchies are important. There is such thing as, you know, I know more than you. Like there's not everyone. Sometimes I wonder the world we're living in too, and this goes well beyond martial arts. I think the internet has made everyone, it's democratized information, it's democratized, you know, everyone's got a voice now, you know, and everyone's, and it's as they should. But I think people got that confused with all opinions are equally valid, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the the, the, the Japanese the way of looking things is like, no, I'm the master, you're the white belt, right? And mm-hmm. today's world, I feel like no, the black belts are being, are being told by white belts that they don't know what they're talking about. And to me, that's crazy, you know, but like, I, and I'm seeing it more and more. And I think it's, 
you know, and, and Brazil is a little bit like that too. Like it's, it's, it's a Western country, very much like the U S with a not so different history from the U S in terms of its colonial past and, you know, the, 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 the melting pot that it is and, you know, slavery, native people. And like you, you get all, they're very similar in a lot of ways. There's some things about it I don't like. I, I appreciate the Japanese way of doing things. So I think I've changed myself personally. I think there's been, and I hate the word spiritual, but like there's some of a spiritual change. Like after, you know, doing this research and being independent, like seeing things from a very different perspective, maybe because I'm getting older too. Mm-hmm. I appreciate these things. Like I, I didn't believe that these things were important when I first started teaching. I believe they're very important now. Like I emphasize them more. I emphasize them with my kids more. Like I, I become more strict in a lot of ways, you know, over the years. And I think it's better. I think it's been, and I got that, and I get that observing how Japanese, especially judokas, they, you know, they 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 do things, and I I think that the world would benefit from a lot of this these characteristics. Nice. Has it um? Do you have certain rituals you picked up now? Like if you're talking about being more disciplined, there's like, I mean, even just like ways you mop the mat or way you fold your gi, like. Have things like that crept in, or I I've never folded a gi a day in my life. I'm not <laughs> I normally just pile it into a ball. I pile it into a ball and put it underneath my arm and throw it in the, the trunk of the car. I've never had a gi bag. I've never had a gi bag in my life. I've never folded a gi. I just I'm not there yet. But I, I guess like other things, like I'm trying to explain here. I, I, I do a much better job at setting the hierarchy around my students now. Like I, I've learned how to keep my distance. I've learned how to um, lead, be a better leader. Like where now there's a reason why a general sleeps in a different tent from the soldiers. I used to think that was stupid. I don't think that's stupid anymore. And I noticed when I first started training jiu-jitsu, some of the coaches I've had, they would sit on a different table. We went out to eat. They would not sit on the same table as you, which I thought was retarded. You know, it's like, who do you want? Why are you better than us? You know, but it's, there's something about it that it's not everyone has the maturity to maintain respect. If you're able to see them eye to eye off the mats, it takes a level of maturity that I feel most people don't have. Okay. You see what so, I'm saying? Like, yes, yeah, yeah, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, that, that's definitely been a big change for me over the years. And I think it's better. Like, I think that there has to, there has to be such thing as hierarchy. And it's a word, it's almost like a big no-no in today's vocabulary because it gives people a sense that, oh, you're saying you're better than the person next to you. And I'm like, yeah, I have 23 years of jujitsu. Yeah, no <laughs> shit, I'm better than you. Like, it's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I am better than you. I know more than you. I've been doing this my whole life. Yes, I know more than you. You have to listen to what I have to say. And if you don't want to listen, you got to go somewhere else because it's, the lines are getting blurred. That's my point. Like in martial arts, I, I don't like that. I think that martial arts environment should be, there's there's a reason that there's a hierarchy in there and it, it works better. Nice. All right. That's a, wow. That is, that is like more than I expected as an answer. That's really cool. Yeah, that's great. Oh. All right. Well, um, I have one more thing about the hierarchy and then that I'm done if you got time. Um, yeah, sure. So, all right. So you, you've kind of learned to separate yourself a little bit more. Is there still an inner circle? So um, I say, give a comparison. Um, I grew up doing Taekwondo and I did a lot of um, Olympic Olympic style Taekwondo in the nineties and early two thousands. And I was um, eventually became a teacher at the school. And there was sort of uh, the group of us that were the high level competitors and teachers. And then there was students and 
you kind of had like layers of separation that way. Is there still sort of that inner circle when you teach or is it? I'm far more selective about who I let in that circle. Okay. Like I used to go out with my students all the time, all uh-huh. of them, right? For you to, it's it's gotten a lot. It's it's pretty. It's like checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint okay. <laughs> to make it into the inner circle. You know, like I you're gonna have to go through multiple visa applications to make it across. You know, <laughs> because it, it it's it, I I learned it. It's because like I said, you want to screen people for maturity. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. If you have the maturity to, to know that, okay, we can go out for a beer after training. Like, oh my God, my coach drinks beer. Yeah, your coach is human. Can you believe that? Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. actually don't drink. I don't, I don't even like beer, but just as an example, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, it, most people, they look at that. Like they say, they, they see you eating uh, uh, like fast food, which I don't eat either. But as an example, they'll judge you differently. Like, what do you tell you tell me you don't eat broccoli and quinoa? all day like you tell me you're not 100 percent healthy it's they they they're constantly in any sign of humanity and a lot most of people lose respect you have to hide your humanity it's it's terrible but it's true Mm -hmm. you have to hide you have to protect it's almost like they want some kind of godlike figure and if you show any sign of weakness the more you show yourself the less they respect you that's not everyone of course a mature human being like we'll go out with you for dinner laugh you know talk dude stuff have a good time and the next day on the mats he's going to treat you exactly like he treated you before like the hierarchy doesn't change they're able to separate the two from my experience the vast majority of people don't have that maturity they lack it they Mm -hmm. the second you meet them eye to eye off the mats there's no such thing as a hierarchy on the mats anymore because now we're equal you understand Mm -hmm. and once you become equal once you become equal with people who are not your equal on the mats right? Mm-hmm. This whole structure is thrown off balance. And I've lived that firsthand. Like it doesn't work. You have to keep, there's a reason why the military does things the way they do because it works. Try to put the decision-making to a vote every time you're at war. Like it, it, try, f- find out if that works in battle. Find out <laughs> if that works in true yeah. combat. Let's put it to the vote. The, the general's opinion is on par with every single trooper. Every yeah. single sort have the exact, like, how would that go? Like, there's a reason why, because the generals, they know more about, they've been specialized, they've been trained, they have more experience, they've been to multiple battles. Yes, their opinion is more valid than that opinion of a soldier. It's not complicated, right? Yeah. And it's not, it's not different in a gym. It's not there. It's the same. It's the, it's, exact, it's the same. I have more experience than my students. But people get these things confused. It's very hard to find that. Um, you know, it's like, I've, like I said, like I, I, re- I tell this to instructors all the time. Like if you're trying to maintain your sanity and grow, you're going to need to learn these things. Now, if you want to have like, I call it the buddy buddy system, right? Or the garage system. You have a group of friends, you get together on the weekends and you guys just want to laugh on the mats and have a good time. And maybe you have like a group of 10 of you guys. That's fine. You can do whatever you want. But if you want to grow, you're going to need some structure. And structure is all going to come back to, if you're the captain of the ship, you're going to have to show these qualities of, you know, having a tight ship, running a tight ship. Because if you don't, you're gonna have a mutiny in your hands. Hmm. And that's it's it's a very good way of looking at how you know this whole industry works. It's people who are overlook this a lot, you know. But if you look at the people who are called good coaches, and I know some of these guys, they actually they're not good technicians, but they have these qualities. 
right? They're not no. If you pay attention, them instructing. I'm not going to mention names, but I've seen some of these guys instruct. And I'm like, this guy's not a good instructor. They can barely teach, but they have all these other qualities, right? That they're they're able to keep the place in order. And if the room is in order long enough, it's going to breed excellence on its own. You don't have to be a technician. You. It sounds crazy, but it's it's true. Like if you can keep a competitive room in order and you can keep the hierarchy intact, it is organically going to turn into a very highly developed, very uh, um, competitive room very quickly. But that's the hard part is keeping all these things in check, right? You got to keep a tight ship. You know, for the competition environment, at least, if you're going to have a more family-oriented feel, it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, even in the family-oriented feel, it, it, it keeps people in check, especially if you have, like, a lot of parents and stuff. Once it breaks down, like, I've been on kind of both oh, ends yeah. of that in schools. If, if that yeah. breaks down, like, thing falls apart if you if you don't have uh um i mean if you have parents that are running the kids program your kids program is going to sink yeah like you know i've we've had the helicopter parents at the gym you know yeah. and uh -huh. yeah it's very it's very hard to keep them in check because they feel like they should be able to give their opinion and i am more willing to lose a student these days than i was like five ten years ago but I, just, I don't want the headache, man. Like I, I'm at a stage of my life, like I value peace more than anything. More than anything. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like if you're going to be a problem and, and very early on, we laid down the rules and that we've been better at it over time, but like it very quickly, you can lose control of situations. I've had two parents almost go at it with each other because they're coaching their kids and they're so intense about it. Yeah. They almost went at it in front of all the other kids. Like it's insane. Like yeah. immaturity, like it's, it's, it, it, some of it borders on insanity and it, you know, you, you deal with all that, man. And then you got to learn how to put the hammer down and create rules and like, this is how it's going to work. And it's like any relationship, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to walk away. Yep. If you're not willing to walk away, you're screwed. This is true with your friends, business, your girlfriend, your students, if you're not willing to walk away, now you're now you're hostage. You're you're trapped. You're screwed. You can't because now that's this dynamic of like it just spirals, right? You have to be able to say, "I am willing to lose twenty students because this rule is it's how we're going to do it, and this is going to work." And then if you stick to the rules, they always work at the end. You just got to mm -hmm. have like the toughness to stick to them, right? Yeah. Man, I, I this has been a process too. So like the documentary, this experience, and, and, and you know, learn more about this was just like the icing on the cake. But this was like things that I've been maturing into over the course of you know the twenty some years I've been in jujitsu. Right on. Yeah, that's tremendously cool. It's <laughs> really cool. Yeah. All right, you got anything? Mark? I think that's it. All right. Well, I think we're about done. And um, so where can people find you? Um, I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, my Instagram account is Robert Jiu-Jitsu, uh, Robert Drysdale, JJ. Um, my website is, I have a personal website, robertdrysdale.net. It sort of links to, you know, all the, my, all my projects. Mm -hmm. Um, the film, you can go to our film if you want to order the book. It's closedguardfilm.com. Uh, my gym is drysdalejujitsu.com. If you go to robertdrysdale.net, like everything, you can, you know, everything is there. Everything's there. But, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, look, I'm starting a YouTube channel soon. Uh, what oh, else? Yeah, we're, we got, I got a lot of opera, I mean, a lot of moving parts, a lot of operations going on simultaneously. But if anyone is ever in Vegas, you're more than welcome to visit the gym. Sweet. Cool. All right. We'll make a trip out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anytime. 
Oh uh, uh, man, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, really absolutely, man. It. It's my pleasure. Great, it was great talking to you, man. Yeah, thank you, thank you for the time. Just send me the link when it's done. Yeah, absolutely. Do. All, right. All right, thank you guys. Sounds great, brother. Have See a great you. rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Good night. All right, man. Well, wrapping up. What'd you think, Mike? That was tremendously fun. That was super cool. Yeah, I've learned so much. Tons. <laughs> and that yes. went in some. Uh, I feel like I got all the questions that I wanted to get in. I think so too. I thought your questions were great. So. Did, did you think they were cool? Yeah, yours were yours were definitely cool. But you told me uh, you told me ahead of time, so. <laughs> yeah. I just had to fangirl out for a while. So I was like, "All right, let's just get this out of the way." That was actually really cool because I hadn't, I hadn't, that wasn't in my head. Uh-huh. Like I was like, "Oh, I forgot about that." There's people that uh, that listen know. that know nothing about yeah. jujitsu, so I'm like, "Well, we got to tell them that this yeah, why yeah. this is cool. Yeah, why this guy's cool, yeah. and it was him that I learned from." That's cool. That's, That's very sweet. Cool. That's very funny. <laughs> Small world. I really want to go out to Vegas, train with them. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> For sure. When the when the world is uh back to traveling, right? We're exactly. Taking some trips. Exactly. Cool. All right, man. Well, until next time, yep. my friends. Keep your coffee regular. Yeah. Peace in.